Welcome to English as a Second Language podcast number 1247. Doing meal planning. This is English as a Second Language podcast episode 1247. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff McQuillan, coming to you from the Center for Educational Development in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Visit eslpod.com and become a member of ESL Podcast. When you do, you can download the learning guide for this episode. This episode is a dialogue between Donnie and Elen about planning what you're going to eat this week. I'm hungry already. Let's get started. Have you ever heard of something called a meal plan? Sure. I make one each week before I go grocery shopping. It saves time and money. My mother suggested I make one. Now that I'm staying home with the kids and Sydney is going back to work. See this? This is my meal plan. I map out the dinners I'll be making each day. It helps me a lot. How? It seems like a lot of work. Well, for one thing, I only have to go grocery shopping once a week. I buy a week's worth of groceries in one fell swoop. I guess that's helpful, but it still seems like too much work. Here's what I do. I look at each week's store circular to see what's seasonal and on sale. I pull out my recipes that include those items, and I see if I have any coupons I can use. I still don't see how I can save much money. I also use the sale items for more than one meal and make enough to have leftovers for lunch the next day. It works like a charm. I think I'll stick to my original plan. Which is? To plead ignorance and ask my mother over to our house to give me cooking lessons. By the time I cook well enough on my own, the children will be nearly full-grown.
Our dialogue begins with Donnie asking Elen, Have you ever heard of something called a meal plan? A meal, M-E-A-L, is what you eat at a certain time during the day. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner are three meals that most people eat each day. A meal plan is something you write down describing what you're going to eat in the next, say, week or even month. Elen says, sure, I make one, meaning I write a meal plan, each week before I go grocery shopping. Grocery, G-R-O-C-E-R-Y, shopping, refers going to a store to buy food. Groceries is another word for food that you buy in a store to eat and or prepare at home. Elen says it saves time and money, that is, having a meal plan saves time and money. Donnie says that his mother suggested that he make a meal plan since he is now staying home with his kids, his children, and Sydney, his wife, is going back to work. Elen says, see this? She's obviously showing something to Donnie we can't see. Well, you can't see it. I can see it because I'm right here. Elen says, see this? This is my meal plan. I map out the dinners I'll be making each day. To map, M-A-P, out, is a two-word phrasal verb that can mean simply to plan and describe something in detail by writing it down. People will sometimes use this expression in business. Let's map out our future. Let's plan what we're going to do in the next month or two months or year. Literally, to map out would be to draw on a piece of paper or to take a map and indicate where you are going to travel. Donnie says, how? How does this help you? It seems like a lot of work. Elen says, well, for one thing, I only have to go grocery shopping once a week. I buy a week's worth of groceries in one fell swoop. Elen says she only goes to the grocery store once a week. She buys a week's worth, W-O-R-T-H. A week's worth of something would be enough of something that would last you, that would be enough for you to use for an entire seven days. A month's worth would be enough for a month, and so forth. She buys a week's worth of groceries in one fell, F-E-L-L, swoop, S-W-O-O.
S-W-O-O-P. The expression in one fell swoop means all at once, at a single time. Donnie says, I guess that's helpful, but it still seems like too much work. Elan then explains what she does. She says, I look at each week's store circular to see what's seasonal and on sale. Here in the United States, grocery stores will often include in a local newspaper or mail to you something called a circular. C-I-R-C-U-L-A-R. The word circular is just a special term for an advertisement that shows all of the discounts, all of the sales at a particular store. Elan looks for seasonal food. Food that is seasonal, S-E-A-S-O-N-A-L, is food that is fresh. We're talking here about fruits and vegetables. Elen says she also looks for anything else that's on sale. To be on sale, S-A-L-E, means it is being sold at a lower price than usual, than normal. She says, I pull out my recipes that include these items, and I see if I have any coupons I can use. A recipe, R-E-C-I-P-E, is a set of written instructions or steps on how to prepare a certain kind of food. A coupon, C-O-U-P-O-N, is usually a small piece of paper that gives you a certain discount, a lower price, when you bring it to the store. Nowadays, people have coupons that are electronic that you can have on your phone or in an email. Donnie says, I still don't see how I can save much money, meaning a lot of money. Elen says, I also use the sale items for more than one meal and make enough to have leftovers for lunch the next day. Leftovers, L E F T O V E R S, refers to food that you prepared for one meal but didn't finish and therefore are able to eat at a later time. So if you make something for dinner and you have some food that is left over, that is extra, you can eat that food tomorrow for lunch. Elen says it works like a charm. That is, her plan works like a charm. C-H-A-R-M. The expression to work like a charm means it works very well. It's an excellent solution to a problem. Donnie, however, 
doesn't seem convinced. He's not persuaded. He says, I think I'll stick to my original plan. To stick, S-T-I-C-K, to something is a two-word phrasal verb, meaning to continue doing what you have been doing. To continue doing something without changing it. Donnie's going to stick to his first or original plan. Elen says, which is, meaning what is that plan? Donnie then explains, to plead ignorance and ask my mother over to our house to give me cooking lessons. To plead, P-L-E-A-D, ignorance, I-G-N-O-R-A-N-C-E means to say that you don't know something or understand something even though you may, in fact, know it or understand it. If someone pleads ignorance, they say, I didn't know or I don't know something. Maybe that person is telling the truth and maybe he isn't. Donnie wants to plead ignorance about cooking and ask his mother over to his house, that is to say, invite her to his house to give him cooking lessons, to teach him how to cook. He says, by the time I cook well enough on my own, meaning by the time or by that point in the future when I am able to cook without my mother's help, the children will be nearly full-grown. To be full, F-U-L-L, hyphen grown, G-R-O-W-N, means to be an adult, to no longer be a child. If we say someone is full-grown, we mean that person is now no longer a child. They're 18 years old or 21 years old. Or it could also refer to a adolescent who has stopped growing, who will no longer get any taller, for example. Full-grown could also describe a plant or a tree that will no longer grow anymore or get any bigger than it is now. Here it refers to Donnie's children becoming old enough so that they are adults. Donnie is saying that because he will learn to cook so slowly from his mother, his mother will in fact do most of the cooking for his children until they are practically adults. It sounds to me like Donnie's plan is better than any meal plan. Now let's listen to the dialogue, this time at a normal speed. Have you ever heard of something called a meal plan? Sure. I make one each week before I go grocery shopping. It saves time and money. My mother suggested I make one now that I'm staying home with the kids and Sydney is going back to work. See this? This is my meal plan. I map out the dinners I'll be making each day. It helps me a lot. 
How? It seems like a lot of work. Well, for one thing, I only have to go grocery shopping once a week. I buy a week's worth of groceries in one fell swoop. I guess that's helpful, but it still seems like too much work. Here's what I do. I look at each week's store circular to see what's seasonal and on sale. I pull out my recipes that include those items, and I see if I have any coupons I can use. I still don't see how I can save much money. I also use the sale items for more than one meal and make enough to have leftovers for lunch the next day. It works like a charm. I think I'll stick to my original plan. Which is? To plead ignorance and ask my mother over to our house to give me cooking lessons. By the time I cook well enough on my own, the children will be nearly full grown. Listening to ESL podcasts to improve your English works like a charm. You should try it more often, especially when you listen to the wonderful scripts by our wonderful script writer, Dr. Lucy Say. From Los Angeles, California, I'm Jeff McQuillan. Thank you for listening. Come back and listen to us again right here on ESL Podcast. English as a Second Language Podcast is written and produced by Dr. Lucy Say. Hosted by Dr. Jeff McQuillan. Copyright 2016 by the Center for Educational Development. Welcome to English as a Second Language podcast number 152. Planning a Company Retreat. You're listening to English as a Second Language Podcast, episode 152. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff McQuillan, coming to you from the Center for Educational Development in beautiful Los Angeles, California. On this podcast, we're going to talk about planning a meeting or a retreat for your company. Let's go. So, Leo, how are the plans coming along for the company retreat? I've made most of the arrangements, and I think it's going well. I'm planning to send out information about the two-day event to the managers at the end of this week. What do you have set up for the opening day? There's normally a welcome dinner. That's what I have arranged. Then, for the following day, I've lined up several speakers and panels to talk about productivity, teamwork, and the other topics we discussed. Good. What about recreation? We don't want it to be all work and no play. The hotel where we're holding the retreat this year has golf and water sports. I don't think the managers will be bored. Well, it sounds like you have it all under control. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Thanks. 
In this podcast, we heard a conversation between Sharon and Leo talking about a company retreat. A retreat, R-E-T-R-E-A-T, in this situation means a meeting. It's a meeting that companies have usually somewhere away from their office. These are often meetings to do planning, thinking about the future, that sort of thing. In many American, big American companies, they have uh, retreats at a hotel somewhere, sometimes in a different city even, if it's just for the executives, for the uh, most important bosses. The word retreat as a noun and a verb is also used in talking about uh, a war when you are in a battle with some other army and the army retreats. That means the army goes back, it pulls back towards its own territory or its own country. Well, in this dialogue, Sharon asks Leo how the plans are coming along for the company retreat. That expression, to come along, means how are they developing? How are they turning out? How are they progressing? Those are all ideas for this, uh, this expression, to come along. To come along. To come along can also mean to accompany, to go with someone. But when someone says, how are your plans coming along? They mean, how are they developing? Are they progressing, going forward the way you want them to? Leo says that he's made most of the arrangements and he thinks it's going well. The arrangements are all of the things that he has to do, making reservations, uh, talking to the hotel, talking to the airline if they're going somewhere else. So these are all parts of arrangements. Arrangements, A-R-R-A-N-G-E-M-E-N-T-S, is anything that you have to do when you are planning a meeting, an, organiz a, uh, an event. You can make arrangements for a wedding or make arrangements for a meeting. Leo says that he's planning to send out information about the two-day event to managers at the end of this week. He's planning to means he's, he's intending to. He has the intention, he wants to send out information about the two-day event two-day, T-W-O hyphen D-A-Y, is uh, the same as the event of two days. But we often use the hyphen form, two-day event, one-day event, to describe something. Notice that we don't say the two-days event. You might think that it should be plural, but in fact, it's singular when there is a hyphen, and it is used more or less as an adjective. So 
I'm going to a four-day retreat means the retreat is going to be four days long. Sharon asks Leo what he has set up for the opening day. To set up, S-E-T-U-P, is another one of those two-word verbs. It means to arrange. It means to plan. Uh, it can also mean sometimes to put into place. So, for example, we've set up the room for our meeting. We've moved the tables and put the chairs in the correct position. That could be set up. Here, when Sharon says, what do you have set up for the opening day, she means what do you have planned, what events, what will happen. The opening day is, of course, the first day of the retreat. We use that word opening to mean first, usually if it's the first day of a long event. You also will hear that expression, for example, for uh, a sports uh, season. Opening day for baseball is the first day of the official baseball season, which should be very soon, I think. You can also have the opening day of school. It's the first day. Sharon says there's normally a welcome dinner, meaning an opening dinner, a beginning dinner to welcome people to the event. Leo says that that is exactly what he has arranged. And to arrange, A-R-R-A-N-G-E, is the verb of arrangements. So we talked about arrangements. Well, this is the verb form, to arrange. Leo says that for the next day, for the following day, the day after the opening day, he's lined up several speakers and panels. To line up, L-I-N-E-U-P, two words, means very much the same as to plan or to arrange. I've lined up some people. We usually use that uh, expression when we are talking about arranging for people to talk to a group. I've lined up some good speakers. I've lined up some good presenters. And, and so we use that verb often when talking about getting people to talk to a group. Speakers, of course, are people who speak to a large group. And company retreats in the United States often bring in what are called motivational speakers or inspirational speakers. And these are speakers who are not necessarily experts on the company. They don't necessarily know a lot about the company, but they're very good at uh, talking to people and getting them interested and excited about something. And they'll often be very good speakers, very, uh, very interesting speakers to listen to. Well, in addition to having speakers, Leo has also lined up some panels. A panel, P-A-N-E-L, is when you have a group of people usually sitting at a table, 
behind a table at uh, in the front of a room, and each person has a microphone in front of them, and you have a discussion among the people about a certain topic. So you may have an expert from different areas come in, and each of them will be on a panel of four or five people, and they will talk about a topic like a discussion with uh, each other so that people can listen to them. Well, the speakers and panels that Leo has lined up are going to talk about productivity and teamwork. Productivity is a very uh, common word you will read when companies talk about how they are doing, if they are making money. Productivity, P-R-D-U-C-T-I-V-I-T-Y, is a noun, and it means uh, how hard the people in the company are working, how much they are producing. If they spend eight hours working, how much work do they get done? How much work do they finish? That's productivity. The adjective would be productive. If you say, I am productive, that means I'm getting something done. Or we had a productive meeting means we got a lot accomplished. We managed to do a lot at the meeting. That rarely happens, of course. Meetings are usually uh, <laughs> not very productive. The opposite of productive is unproductive. UN, unproductive. Teamwork, all one word, T-E-A-M-W-O-R-K. Teamwork is the idea that people work together, just like a, a team. And once again, American companies like to talk about Teamwork, everyone working together. There's an expression, be a team player. Be a team, T-E-A-M, player, means work together with other people, uh, get along with other people, don't argue with other people. That's uh, being a team player. Sharon asks about the recreation for the retreat. Recreation means enjoyment, things that people can do, usually something physical, like a sport, uh, but it could be other things as well. Recreation is R-E-C-R-E-A-T-I-O-N. There is a verb to recreate, but it's not used very often. The noun is much more common. Sharon says that they, she doesn't want the meeting to be all work and no play. All work and no play means, of course, that they only work and they don't have time to play. But that's sort of a uh, an expression. I don't I don't want it to be all work and no play. Leo says that the hotel where they are holding the retreat, to hold here means the same as to have. We often use it for meetings. Where is the meeting being held? Where are we holding the meeting? It means where is it going to be? Well, the hotel where they're holding the retreat has golf and water sports. Golf, of course, you all know. 
the, the sport that Tiger Woods plays and other people. Water sports refers to skiing and swimming and doing things, obviously, in the water. Sharon says, it sounds good. It sounds like you have it all under control. To have something under control means that you uh, are able to manage it, that nothing is being forgotten. Everything is under control. I have everything planned. Everything has been taken care of, is another way of saying that. Finally, Sharon says, keep up the good work. That's a very common expression when you want to tell someone to continue doing the good work that they are doing. Keep up the good work. Now let's listen to the dialogue, this time at a native rate of speech. So, Leo, how are the plans coming along for the company retreat? I've made most of the arrangements, and I think it's going well. I'm planning to send out information about the two-day event to the managers at the end of the week. What do you have set up for the opening day? There's normally a welcome dinner. That's what I've arranged. Then, for the following day, I've lined up several speakers and panels to talk about productivity, teamwork, and the other topics we discussed. Good. What about recreation? We don't want it to be all work and no play. The hotel where we're holding the retreat this year has golf and water sports. I don't think the managers will be bored. Well, it sounds like you have it all under control. Keep up the good work. Thanks. The script for today's podcast was written by Dr. Lucy Say. Remember to visit our website at eslpod.com for more information about this podcast and for the transcript of today's dialogue. From Los Angeles, California, I'm Jeff McQuillan. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on ESL Podcast. English as a Second Language Podcast is written and produced by Dr. Lucy Say, hosted by Dr. Jeff McQuillan. This podcast is copyright 2006. Welcome to English as a Second Language Podcast, number 517, Watching Competitive Sports. This is English as a Second Language Podcast, episode 517. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff McQuillan, coming to you from the Center for Educational Development in beautiful Los Angeles, California. You can go to our website at eslpod.com and download a learning guide for this episode. The learning guide is an 8 to 10 page guide we provide for all of our current episodes that helps you improve your English even faster. This episode is a dialogue between Bruno and Tamara about watching sporting events that are competitive, meaning someone wins and someone loses. 
That's a pretty broad category, but we'll talk about some vocabulary that you would use in a sporting event, such as a football game or a baseball game. Let's get started. Hey, what are you doing? Give me back that remote. The movie I want to watch is on right now. Do you mind? Of course I mind. I'm watching the playoffs. Can't you see that? The playoffs? Oh, I'll watch with you. You? You don't know anything about sports. It doesn't matter. I always root for the underdog. Our team will be victorious. Go team! Fine, but I'm rooting for the other team. Let's just watch the game, okay? Your team is going to get pounded. We will be the champions. Please, can I just watch this game in peace? I've been waiting for it all season. Ooh, somebody is a little testy. I think it's because you know you're backing a losing team. You can't stand being on the losing side. Am I right? Your players are running scared already. I can tell. I'm just trying to follow the game. Look at that. Your best player just choked. How could he have missed such an easy shot? If you don't be quiet, I'll show you what it feels like to get choked. Bruno says to Tamara, Hey, what are you doing? Give me back that remote. Hey is used to get someone's attention. Sometimes it just means hi, but if you say it with the right intonation, like hey, then usually it's because you're angry or upset. Bruno is upset with Tamara because she took away his remote. Remote here stands for remote control. It's a small device you use to control. For example, your television set, or your cable or satellite TV box. That is what remote means here. But there are other meanings of this word in English. So take a look at the learning guide for some more explanations. Tamara says the movie I want to watch is on right now. Is on meaning is currently showing on the television. Do you mind? Meaning, is it okay? That's an informal way of asking someone to stop what they are doing, usually because it is bothering you. So, for example, you may be eating at a restaurant, and the person next to you is talking loudly on their cell phone, which I absolutely hate. I could turn to them and say, "Excuse me, do you mind?" We're trying to eat here. I probably wouldn't do that, especially if they were bigger than I am. But that's the idea. 
you would probably only say it to someone you know. It's not something you would say to, say, your boss, unless you don't mind losing your job. Bruno says, of course I mind, meaning, no, I'm not going to stop what I'm doing. I am bothered by your request. He says, I'm watching the playoffs. The playoffs are games that are played at the end of a season. For example, in baseball, the season begins in April and it ends in late September. Then after, in October, we have the playoffs. The best teams play against each other for the championship. Tamara says, the playoffs? Oh, I'll watch with you. Bruno says, you? He's very surprised that Tamara wants to watch sports with him. He says, you don't know anything about sports. Tamara says, it doesn't matter. It's not important that I don't know. I always root for the underdog. To root, R-O-O-T, for a team means to cheer for them. That is, to be in favor of them, want them to win. I'm going to root for the University of Minnesota. That's my university. So when they play a football game, I am rooting for them. In baseball, of course, I root for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Well, Tamara says that she always roots for the underdog. By the way, root has a couple of different meanings in English as well. Once again, take a look at that learning guide for some more explanations. She's rooting for the underdog. The underdog is the team that is not expected to win, the team that you believe is the weakest. So when the United States plays soccer in the World Cup they're probably the underdog, meaning no one really expects them to win the championship. She says, our team will be victorious. To be victorious means to be the victor, the winner. Go team, she says. Often if you are at a game and you want to cheer, that is you want to express your support for your team out loud, you Use the verb go, like go Dodgers, means I want the Dodgers to win. You are telling them to play well, if you will. Bruno then says, fine, okay, but I'm rooting for the other team. Let's just watch the game, okay? Tamara says, your team is going to get pounded. To get pounded is an informal expression meaning to get beaten badly. They're going to lose by many, many points. Tamara is doing what a lot of sports fans do. She's saying something negative about the other team. Your team is going to get pounded. They're going to be defeated by a large score. Tamara says, we will be the champions. The champions are the winners, the victors. Bruno says, please, can I just watch this game in peace? To do something in peace means to do it 
quietly, calmly, without other people making noise or talking or shouting. I was in the library, public library, this afternoon, and there was a woman there sitting next to one of the computers, and she starts talking very loudly on her cell phone. Did I mention that I really hate people who talk loudly on their cell phones in public? Well, I'm sure that the other people in the library wanted to read in peace, meaning without being disturbed by loud noises. Unhappily, that is almost impossible nowadays. But now I'm sounding like an old man, aren't I? Bruno says, Please, can we just watch this game in peace? I've been waiting for it all season. The season is the time, the months in the year when the regular games are played. That's called the regular season. After that, when you have the playoffs, that's called, at least in baseball, the postseason, after the regular season. Tamara says, Ooh, somebody is a little testy. To be testy, T-E-S-T-Y, means to be easily angered or frustrated. We might use the word irritable, someone who gets irritated, who gets bothered by something. Tamara says, I think it's because you know you're backing a losing team. To back something or someone is to support them. It could mean here to root for them. In business, if you are backing someone, you are giving them money for their business. You are an investor. You would be called a backer, someone who backs a business. Here, Tamara means that Bruno is rooting for a team that she says is going to lose. Tamara says, you can't stand, meaning you are very bothered by, you are unable to tolerate or put up with the fact that you are on the losing side. Am I right? Your players are running scared already. I can tell. I can see. To run scared means to be frightened or worried that something is going to happen, something bad is going to happen, especially with your job or perhaps in a competition like a sporting event. Bruno says, I'm just trying to follow the game. To follow the game means to pay attention to what is happening. Tamara says, look at that. Your best player just choked. In sports or in any competition, when you say someone chokes, C-H-O-K-E-S, you mean they do not perform well, usually because they're nervous or under too much pressure and they are not able to do what they would normally do. That's to choke. To choke also means not to be able to breathe. If you eat something and it gets stuck in your throat, you could choke. You would perhaps pass out, even die, because you were not getting oxygen into your lungs, into your body. But here it simply means that someone is not performing very well. Tamara says, how could he have missed 
such an easy shot. How is it possible? Because it was so easy, the player should have made this shot. Shot here would refer to, for example, in a basketball game, when you throw the ball up, that's called a shot. Bruno says, if you don't be quiet, I'll show you what it feels like to get choked. To get choked means that someone grabs you by the neck and squeezes so that you are unable to breathe. We can say that the person is choking. That's usually because they eat something, for example, that gets stuck in their throat and they can't breathe. Or if you want to kill someone, you may choke them. The person was getting choked by his friend because he was angry. Of course, that's very dangerous. You should probably not choke anybody today. Bruno, of course, isn't serious. He's not actually going to choke Tamara. We don't approve of that on ESL Podcast. Now let's listen to the dialogue, this time at a normal speed. Hey, what are you doing? Give me back that remote. The movie I want to watch is on right now. Do you mind? Of course I mind. I'm watching the playoffs. Can't you see that? The playoffs? Oh, I'll watch with you. You? You don't know anything about sports. It doesn't matter. I always root for the underdog. Our team will be victorious. Go team! Fine, but I'm rooting for the other team. Let's just watch the game, okay? Your team is going to get pounded. We will be the champions. Please, can I just watch this game in peace? I've been waiting for it all season. Ooh, somebody is a little testy. I think it's because you know you're backing a losing team and you can't stand being on the losing side. Am I right? Your players are running scared already. I can tell. I'm just trying to follow the game. Look at that. Your best player just choked. How could he have missed such an easy shot? If you don't be quiet, I'll show you what it feels like to get choked. The script for this episode was written by somebody who never chokes when she has an important dialogue to write, Dr. Lucy Say. Go, Lucy. From Los Angeles, California, I'm Jeff McQuillan. Thank you for listening. Come back and listen to us next time on ESL Podcast. English as a Second Language Podcast is written and produced by Dr. Lucy Say, hosted by Dr. Jeff McQuillan. Copyright 2009 by the Center for Educational Development. Welcome to English as a Second Language Podcast, number 882, Playing a Practical Joke. This is English as a Second Language Podcast, episode 882. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff McQuillan, coming to you from the Center for Educational Development in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Our website is eslpod.com. Become a member of ESL Podcast by going to our website. 
This episode is a dialogue between Patricia and Luis about someone playing a practical joke on someone else. Let's get started. What are you doing? I'm setting up a practical joke for Bobby. I can't wait to see the look on his face when he walks outside and finds his bike in pieces. It'll be the best prank ever. You're not really going to take apart his bike, are you? I'll let you in on the joke. He'll just be looking at spare parts. I've hidden his bike in the garage. He's really going to freak out when he thinks that you've run over his bike with the car, though. I think this is more cruel than mischievous. Lighten up. When he realizes he's the butt of the joke, he'll think it's hilarious. Trust me. Couldn't you just play some other kind of practical joke? Maybe with a whoopee cushion? A whoopee cushion? That's child's play. This practical joke is worthy of a master prankster. Patricia begins our dialogue by saying to Luis, What are you doing? Luis says, I'm setting up a practical joke for Bobby. To set, S-E-T, up is a phrasal verb meaning, I'm getting ready, I'm getting organized, I'm putting together. Luis is putting together a practical joke. A joke is when someone says something funny. It could be a story, it could be something else that makes us laugh. A practical joke is some sort of physical action, some sort of trick that's supposed to be funny. The trick is always on another person. So you do something so that the other person looks silly or foolish, not very intelligent. That's what a practical joke tries to do. It tries to make another person look silly, look ridiculous. Well, Luis is setting up a practical joke for Bobby. We often use the verb to play a practical joke, which is in the title of this episode. Luis is going to play a practical joke for Bobby or on Bobby. I can't wait to see the look on his face, Luis says, when he walks outside and finds his bike in pieces. The expression, I can't wait to something, means I'm really looking forward to something. In this case, 
Luis is looking forward to the look on Bobby's face when he sees what has happened. He's looking forward to the reaction that Bobby will have when he walks outside, outside of their building where they're working, probably, and finds or discovers his bicycle in pieces. When we say something is in pieces, P-I-E-C-E-S, we mean it has been taken apart. It has been disassembled with all of the individual pieces laying on the ground or on the floor. So Luis has taken Bobby's bike and he has taken it apart. He has disassembled it. And now the bike is in pieces. Louis says it will be the best prank ever. A prank, P-R-A-N-K, is another word for a practical joke. More recently, on a popular television program, instead of using the term practical joke or prank, they use the verb to punk, P-U-N-K. To punk here means the same as to play a practical joke on someone. In the television show, Punked, they play practical jokes on famous people, typically on celebrities. Patricia says, you're not really going to take apart his bike, are you? Louis says, I'll let you in on the joke. To let someone in on a joke means to let someone know how you are going to do your practical joke, how you're going to play your practical joke, giving them the details of what is going to happen. Of course, Bobby doesn't know what's going to happen. Luis is going to tell Patricia. Luis says, Bobby will just be looking at spare parts. Spare, S-P-A-R-E, parts, are things that you use typically when you have a machine and it breaks down. You need to fix just part of the machine. We would call the thing you use to fix it with, that you replace the old thing that doesn't work with, spare parts. Luis is saying that when Bobby sees his bicycle, it will look like it's just a bunch of parts, just a bunch of pieces. I've hidden his bike in the garage, Luis says. So now we understand what Luis is doing. He's not actually going to take Bobby's bike and take it all apart and leave it on the ground. He's going to take some spare parts, some other parts of another bicycle and put that on the ground. Or I should say put those on the ground, those parts on the ground. Bobby's real bike will not be the one on the ground. It will be in the garage. That's the joke. Patricia says he's really going to freak out when he thinks that you've run over his bike with the car, though. So that's the trick. 
Luis is going to pretend like he ran over the bike. To run over means to hit and actually have the, in this case, car drive over the bicycle, which, of course, I don't recommend if you have a bicycle. Or at least you should get off the bicycle before someone runs it over. Anyway, Patricia is talking about how Bobby is going to freak out. To freak, F-R-E-A-K, out, is a two-word phrasal verb, meaning to become very upset, very angry, to lose control of yourself. It's an informal way of saying to go wild or to go crazy, to be so angry you start yelling and screaming. Patricia says, I think this is more cruel than mischievous. Cruel, C-R-U-E-L, means very mean, when you are trying to hurt another person. Cruel is something that is not kind. Mischievous, M-I-S-C-H-I-E-V-O-U-S, is used to describe a thing or person who is causing problems or causing trouble, but usually in a fun way, or at least in order to be funny. It's an adjective we would most typically use with children who are getting into trouble. They're not bad children, except my neighbor's children, but they're children that are causing problems. Louise says to Patricia, lighten up. This expression, lighten, L-I-G-H-T-E-N, up, is a phrasal verb meaning relax. Don't take things so seriously. Don't get so excited. Try to have more fun. Louis says, when Bobby realizes he's the butt of the joke, he'll think it's hilarious. Trust me. To be the butt, B-U-T-T, of the joke means you are the person that people are laughing at. You are the person who has had this practical joke played on, or more grammatically, on whom the practical joke has been played. Louis says, Bobby will think it's hilarious. Hilarious, H-I-L-A-R-I-O-U-S, means very funny. So Bobby will think this is very funny. That's what Louis says. He says, trust me meaning, believe me, I know what I'm talking about here. Patricia, lighten up, Patricia, seriously. Patricia says, couldn't you just play some other kind of practical joke? Maybe with a whoopee cushion? A whoopee, W-H-O-O-P-E-E, cushion, C-U-S-H-I-O-N, is basically a small rubber bag that has one opening in the bag so that when you sit on it, it makes a noise. It makes a funny noise. 
The idea is that you would put this cushion underneath someone and they wouldn't realize they were going to sit on it. And then when they sit down, it makes a funny noise. It's the sort of thing you would see in an old 1930s or 1940s movie, perhaps. Louise says a whoopee cushion, that's child's play. The expression child's play means something is very easy to do. Something doesn't require any planning. It's too easy. That's the idea. Louise says this practical joke is worthy of a master prankster. To be worthy of something means it's good enough for, or it's appropriate for. Luis is saying this joke is so good that it is something that you would only expect normally from a master prankster. A master here means an expert, someone who knows a lot about something. A prankster is a person who plays practical jokes on other people. A prankster is a person who is always creating these pranks to make other people look foolish. Now let's listen to the dialogue, this time at a normal speed. What are you doing? I'm setting up a practical joke for Bobby. I can't wait to see the look on his face when he walks outside and finds his bike in pieces. It'll be the best prank ever. You're not really going to take apart his bike, are you? I'll let you in on the joke. He'll just be looking at spare parts. I've hidden his bike in the garage. He's really going to freak out when he thinks that you've run over his bike with a car, though. I think this is more cruel than mischievous. Lighten up. When he realizes he's the butt of the joke, he'll think it's hilarious. Trust me. Couldn't you just play some other kind of practical joke, maybe with a whoopee cushion? A whoopee cushion? That's child's play. This practical joke is worthy of a master prankster. I can't wait to see the next wonderful script by our wonderful script writer, Dr. Lucy Say. From Los Angeles, California, I'm Jeff McQuillan. Thank you for listening. Come back and listen to us again right here on ESL Podcast. English as a Second Language Podcast is written and produced by Dr. Lucy Say, hosted by Dr. Jeff McQuillan. Copyright 2013 by the Center for Educational Development. You're listening to ESL Podcasts, English Cafe, number 152. This is English as a Second Language Podcasts, English Cafe. Episode 152. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff McQuillan, coming to you from the Center for Educational Development in beautiful Los Angeles, California. 
Our website is eslpod.com. Go there to download a learning guide for this episode, an 8 to 10 page guide we provide for all of our current episodes that will help you improve your English even faster. While you're there, take a look at our ESL podcast store, which has additional courses in business and personal English, and our ESL podcast blog, where we provide even more help in improving your English. This cafe is another one of our Ask an American episodes, where we listen to native speakers talking at normal speed and try to explain what it is that they are saying. It gives you a chance to hear other voices other than mine. This cafe is going to focus on tattoos, marks that people make on their skin, why tattoos are popular in the United States, and what are the reasons that people get tattoos. As always, we'll also answer a few of your questions. Let's get started. Getting tattooed or getting tattoos, you can use either expression, to get tattooed or to get a tattoo. A tattoo is when they put ink on your skin and it stays there permanently. Ink is what you would normally find in a pen, but this is a special kind of ink usually with many different colors. It used to be that tattoos were popular only among prisoners, gang members, perhaps sailors, people in the armed services at sea, what you might call tough guys, men who were considered tough, men who were considered very masculine, and perhaps a little dangerous. Now, however, tattoos have become very popular. One out of every five Americans now has a tattoo. That's 20% of the population, according to one recent survey. Why are these tattoos becoming so popular? What are the reasons why people get a tattoo on themselves? The reasons may not have changed over the years, even though tattoos are now more popular. We're going to start by listening to one person who works at a tattoo shop, what we might call a tattoo parlor, P-A-R-L-O-R, a place where you can get a tattoo. He's going to describe some of the typical reasons why people get a tattoo, We'll listen and then go back and explain what he says. It could be broken heart. It could be a newborn kid. It could be just want to, you know, let your mom know that, that you love her, you know, like the old heart mom thing. Sometimes it's just to get out some of that teen angst on your arm. You know, whatever imagery they get tattooed, whatever story they're telling through their tattoos is something that they want to commemorate, that they want to honor, that they want to communicate with the rest of the world. You know, it's, it's a way of putting a message out there. Because... 
this interview was done at a tattoo shop, you can actually hear the sound of the machine that puts the tattoo onto your skin. We would call that sound a buzz, B-U-Z-Z. It's sort of a zzz sound. The gentleman here says that there are many reasons why people get tattoos. He begins by saying, it could be a broken heart, meaning that your girlfriend left you or your boyfriend left you when you have a romantic disappointment. We say you have a broken heart. It could be a broken heart. It could be a newborn kid. That is, if you have a child very recently, some people may celebrate that by putting a tattoo of the child's name, for example. He says it could be just one of, you know, let your mom know that that you love her. Of course, in American English, you hear this expression, you know, a lot, when people are thinking of what to say next. So another reason would be to let your mother know that you love her. Like the old heart mom thing, he says. A very traditional tattoo was to put a heart on your arm and your mother's name or just mom in the heart to show that you loved your mother. He continues that sometimes the reason is just to get that teen angst out on your arm. Teen means teenager. Angst, A-N-G-S-T, here means a sort of anger when you are mad at the world, when you are mad at everything, something that many teenagers go through. He says that getting a tattoo is a way to get that teenage angst out. To get something out here means to get rid of it. And you get it out, you get rid of it on your arm. You put that angst, that anger on your arm. It's sort of a type of almost therapy, you might say. He says whatever imagery, whatever picture people get... Whatever story they are trying to tell through their tattoo is something they want to commemorate. He's saying here that when someone gets a tattoo, they are telling a story almost. They are trying to communicate something. He says they want to commemorate something. To commemorate means to remember something to honor something. In fact, the next thing he says is something that they want to honor, something that they want to give respect to. It's also something that they want to usually communicate to the rest of the world, to let other people know about this story, this thing, this idea that you have. He says, finally, you know, it's a way of putting a message out there. To put something out there is an idiomatic expression which means 
to let other people know about it, to publicize it, to put it in a place where other people will hear or see it. Someone may say, I just want to put this idea out there for us to consider. For example, you're having a meeting at your company and you say, well, let me put this out there. Let me share this with you. Let me tell you this so that everyone knows about it. In this case, the person getting the tattoo is putting that message out there, putting whatever message they have in their tattoo out so that other people can see it, perhaps talk about it. Let's listen to that same comment again. It could be broken heart. It could be a newborn kid. It could be just want to, you know, let your mom know that, that you love her, you know, like the old heart mom thing. Sometimes it's just to get out some of that teen angst on your arm. You know, whatever imagery they get tattooed, whatever story they're telling through their tattoos is something that they want to commemorate, that they want to honor, that they want to communicate with the rest of the world. You know, it's, it's a way of putting a message out there. Getting a tattoo has become very popular among young adults, teenagers, and people in their 20s and 30s. One of the changes that has come about in tattooing is that people now want something very personal. They want to design their own tattoo, their own message. Before, people would walk into a tattoo parlor and they would say, I want that design, and you could select one. Now, it's becoming more popular for people to express themselves through their own tattoo design. We'll listen to someone who's going to talk about this change in how tattoos now are supposed to be more personal. What we're finding is that young adults aren't just necessarily hopping into a tattoo shop, you know, on a Friday night unplanned and picking out something off the wall, but what they're really doing is intricately designing and really thinking out what they want and planning it, and um, it's become a big form of artistic expression for people. This woman is commenting on how young adults are now personalizing their tattoo design. She starts by saying, what we're finding, what we are learning, is that young adults aren't just necessarily hopping into a tattoo shop on a Friday night. When we say they aren't necessarily, we mean they don't always do this, or this may not be what is happening. To hop, H-O-P, normally means to jump up and down on the ground. For example, animals such as kangaroos hop. Hopping into somewhere, however, is an expression that means to go somewhere without a lot of thought, to go somewhere without planning too much, sometimes just for a short time. You may be, for example, driving by a drugstore and you say to your husband or wife, I'm thinking of just hopping into this store to get some shaving cream. I'm going to go in 
and come out quickly, but there isn't a lot of planning involved. She's saying then that young adults aren't just going into a tattoo parlor some night to get a tattoo unplanned. They don't just pick something off the wall. To pick something means to select something. Off the wall refers to pictures that would be on a wall so you could see them and point to one to select it. As we said before, that's not what people are doing now. What they're really doing, she says, is intricately designing and thinking about what they want, really planning it. The word intricate, I-N-T-R-I-C-A-T-E, means with great detail, something that has a lot of small parts or small pieces to it, something that is very detailed. She's saying that these young adults are intricately, using it as an adverb, designing and thinking about what they want. So they're putting a lot of thought into it, we might say. She says it's really a big form, an important way, of artistic expression for people. It's the way people express themselves and their own artistic senses. Let's listen one more time. What we're finding is that young adults aren't just necessarily hopping into a tattoo shop, you know, on a Friday night, unplanned and picking out something off the wall. But what they're really doing is intricately designing and really thinking out what they want and planning it. And um, it's become a big form of artistic expression for people. An example of someone creating a tattoo especially for themselves as a way of remembering or commemorating something is this next gentleman who's going to talk about how his brother died. His brother loved nature, loved the outdoors, especially here in California. So he had a tree, a tattoo of a tree, put on himself it was a redwood tree, which is a very tall tree that grows here in California. Let's listen to his quote about why he did this and why it's so important to him. My feelings for my brother and how much I loved him and cared about him are going to be with me the rest of my life. So like, I can wake up in the morning, you know, put my shirt on and be like, oh yeah, there's that thing my brother loved. He begins by saying, my feelings for my brother, what I felt for him, and how much I loved him and cared about him are going to be with me for the rest of my life. He will always remember and have that love of his brother with him. Then he says, so like I can wake up in the morning, you know, put my shirt on and be like, Oh, yeah, there is that thing my brother loved. I mentioned before that Americans like to use the expression, you know, as a way of trying to think of or give them time to think of something to say. 
there's also another interesting word we use for this same purpose, which is like. So like, I wake up in the morning. He could just say, I wake up in the morning. The so like is very informal, very conversational. It's something that a young adult or teenager might say especially. He says, so like I wake up in the morning, you know, put my shirt on, and be like, oh yeah. And be like, here means, and say to myself, oh yeah, that is the thing, that tree, that my brother loved. The use of like has become very popular among young children, young adults, teenagers. You'll often see it now in movies and television shows. For example, someone may say, well, I was like, I'm not going to the movies. And she was like, well, I don't care if you don't go to the movie. I don't like you anyway. And I'm like, well, go away. The word like here doesn't really have any important meaning other than this is what I did or this is what I said. Sometimes it takes the place of another verb such as I said or she said. So I can say I was like no way, meaning I was thinking or I was saying the words no way. Let's listen to this comment one more time. My feelings for my brother and how much I loved him and cared about him are going to be with me the rest of my life. So, like, I can wake up in the morning, you know, put my shirt on and be like, oh, yeah, there's that thing my brother loved. Some of you may wonder where my tattoos are. I do have a tattoo. It's a tattoo of ESL podcast. I decided to put it right on my forehead, right above my eyes, between my eyes and where my hair would be if I had hair, so that everyone can see it. So someday if you meet me, you can see my ESL pod tattoo. Now let's answer a few of your questions. Our first question comes from Rodrigo, R-O-D-R-I-G-O, in Brazil. Rodrigo wants to know about the expression cover up. Cover up can be both a noun and a phrasal verb. As a verb to cover up something or to cover something up means to prevent other people from seeing it or prevent other people from knowing about something. Usually, often, something wrong that you did. But to cover up can also simply mean, for example, if you come out of the shower or taking a bath and there is someone else in the room, you might take a towel and cover yourself up, prevent other people from seeing those parts of your body that no one should be seen. In my case, that would be my entire body. Cover up as a verb can also mean to try to hide your mistakes from other people. 
cover up as a noun refers to different types of women's clothing, usually worn over a swimsuit or exercise clothing. A cover-up is intended to hide the woman's body or the shape of the woman's body from view, from other people seeing it. For example, if you are on the beach or near the beach, such as Venice Beach here in Los Angeles, and you are out in the water with your bikini, I always wear a bikini when I go swimming, but you are now then going to go to a restaurant. Well, you don't want to go into the restaurant wearing your bikini. In fact, the restaurant may not allow you in. So you have to wear a cover-up so that it covers your bikini and the rest of your body. Cover-up is also a type of makeup. So there are three meanings here. It's a type of makeup that women use, usually, to prevent people from seeing imperfections, things that are not good-looking on their skin. For example, you may have a mark on your skin, or you may have hurt yourself and there is a small mark, which we would call a scar, S-C-A-R, on your skin. Cover-up is made to cover those things so other people don't see them. Another word for this type of cover-up is a concealer, because to conceal means to prevent other people from seeing something or knowing about something. I can actually think of a fourth meaning for cover-up, which is a noun that describes someone who is trying to conceal something. It describes the situation. For example, after former President Richard Nixon broke the law, there was a cover-up. He tried to prevent other people from knowing about it. Of course, that didn't work, and so he had to leave the office of the presidency of the United States back in 19, let's see, 74, I think. Our second question comes from Akram, A-K-R-A-M, in Iran. Akram wants to know the differences when we use the words talk, say, and speak. This is a good question because they are similar in meaning. Sometimes we can use these words to mean the same thing, talk, and speak, for example, can be used to express the same idea. For example, I want to talk to the manager. I want to speak to the manager. Either of these is correct. There are some sentences, however, where only one of these would be correct, and that's where it gets a little difficult. Talk is sometimes used to mean to discuss. Let's talk about your proposal over lunch, during lunch. Or, my wife and I want to talk about our next vacation. We want to discuss it. Say is often used when we want to tell what someone else has said, when we want to report 
someone else's words. For example, I didn't hear you. What did you say? In other words, I want to hear those words again because I didn't understand them. Or, my grandmother always says, Time doesn't wait for anyone. My grandmother always says, This is something that are her words, something that she says. Speak is used specifically with languages. He speaks Russian. He speaks Farsi or Persian. How many languages do you speak? Speak is also used when someone is making a formal presentation. The ambassador will speak at the conference. There will be a formal presentation that he gives. Finally, Yamshid, J-A-M-S-H-I-D, in Germany, wants to know about when certain letters are not pronounced in English. This is a difficult thing to try to explain. He's specifically interested in the words center and half. Well, center is the middle part of something. If we're speaking very carefully, we would say center. You can hear the T, t center. But if we're speaking normally in a conversation and quickly, you may not hear the T pronounced. This happens in lots of different languages when someone is speaking quickly. Sometimes certain letters are not pronounced completely. So I may say, I am here in the center of Los Angeles. In the center of Los Angeles. Notice I don't say center. I could if I wanted to be more careful. The question also relates to the word half, H-A-L-F. Here it's a little different. The L is never pronounced, even if you're speaking carefully. That word is pronounced simply half. You don't hear an L. The half of something is one part of it, 50% of it. If you have a question for us here at the Center for Educational Development, you can email us. Our email address is eslpod at eslpod.com. We don't have time to answer all of your questions, but we'll try to answer as many as we can. From Los Angeles, California, I'm Jeff McQuillan. Thank you for listening, as always. Come back and listen to us next time on The English Cafe. ESL Podcast English Cafe is written and produced by Dr. Jeff McQuillan and Dr. Lucy Say. This podcast is copyright 2008 by the Center for Educational Development. You're listening to ESL Podcasts English Cafe, number 517.
This is English as a Second Language Podcast, English Cafe, episode 517. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff McQuillan, coming to you from the Center for Educational Development in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Visit our website at eslpod.com. Become a member of ESL Podcast. When you do, you can download the learning guide for this episode. The learning guide contains a complete transcript of everything we say, plus it has all of the vocabulary, definitions, additional sample sentences with our keywords, cultural notes, and a whole lot more. If you're on Facebook, why don't you go and like us on facebook.com slash ESLPOD. This episode, on this cafe, we're going to talk about the 1998 movie Die Hard with Bruce Willis. We're also going to talk about a famous American poet, a woman with a very interesting story by the name of Emma Lazarus. And as always, we'll answer a few of your questions. Let's get started. The movie Die Hard tells the story of a tough, strong New York City police officer by the name of John McClane. John McClane, who is played by the actor Bruce Willis in the movie, uses his skills as a policeman and his intelligence to outwit a criminal, a group of criminals, and to save innocent people. To outwit, O-U-T-W-I-T, someone, means to defeat someone in a contest or competition by being more intelligent, by being smarter than the other person. The movie begins with John McClane on an airplane. He is flying from New York to Los Angeles to visit his wife, Holly, and their children for Christmas in December. He and his wife are separated, meaning they no longer live together, but they're not legally divorced. McLean hopes his wife will give their marriage another try after this visit. To give something another try, T-R-Y, means to attempt to do something for a second time to see if it will work better or will be successful. McLean arrives at the airport, and when he does, there is someone waiting for him, a professional limousine driver. A limousine, L-I-M-O-U-S-I-N-E, is a large, very comfortable car that usually has a professional driver, sort of like a taxi cab. 
However, a limousine is more expensive and much nicer. This limousine driver takes McLean to the office building where his wife works here in Los Angeles. McLean gets out of the car and goes into the office building, and the driver goes down into the basement below the office building and sits in the car waiting for McLean to finish his visit so he can drive him to his next destination, to where he is going after that. So McLean enters into the building, and his wife, Holly, is there. Holly takes him to her office so that he can freshen up. To freshen, F-R-E-S-H-E-N, up, is a two-word phrasal verb that means to wash your face and hands, perhaps even to change your clothing after a long period of travel or of some other activity. I tend to think we use this phrasal verb to freshen up more with women than with men, but I guess we could say that John McLean went into Holly's office, his wife's office, to freshen up after this long plane ride from New York. Holly leaves her husband in her office and goes back to the Christmas party that her company is having. McLean says he will join her when he is finished freshening up. After Holly goes back to the party, however, a group of men arrive at the building. They enter with guns and kill the security guard, the man whose job is to keep people safe. One of the men stays at the desk and pretends to be the security guard. The rest of them go upstairs to the office party and they take the entire group of people working hostage. A hostage, H-O-S-T-A-G-E, is a person who is held against his wishes, a person who is held as a prisoner until some sort of condition is met. When someone is taken as a hostage, often the person who is taking them as a hostage will demand money. I want a million dollars, and when I get a million dollars, I will give you your husband back or your child back. That is a hostage. Sometimes hostages are taken for political reasons. A political group might take someone hostage and demand certain changes in a government, for example. Well, Holly and her fellow employees are taken hostage. McLean, however, is still in Holly's office. He doesn't know what's going on, but he hears the noises and realizes that the building is being attacked. So he escapes, he leaves Holly's office and goes to an area of the building that is still under construction, meaning it's still being built. It's not yet finished. He pulls the fire alarm to try to call the police. A fire alarm is a loud 
siren or noise that goes off in a building, usually when a fire has started. If you pull the fire alarm, you turn it on, and so a noise is made, and in most cases, the fire department and or police are automatically called. Usually it's the fire department, of course. The police are told that there's a fire, and they call the building to see if a fire truck needs to be sent to help put the fire out. When the police call, however, the man pretending to be a security guard, one of the criminals, answers the phone and says, no, no, there's nothing wrong in the building. He tells the police not to come to the building. At this point, our hero, John McClane, realizes he will have to do something else to get the police to come to the building in order to save these hostages. The leader of the evil men is a German named Hans Gruber. It's interesting, as the movies and politics of the world change, the evil people in American movies change nationalities as well. For many years it was the German person, then it could be perhaps a Russian Maybe now, I don't know, a Chinese. It depends on the political atmosphere of the period in which the movie is made. This movie was made in the late 1990s. Anyway, Hans Gruber knows that there is someone else in the building, someone who is not in the group of hostages that he has. So he sends his men to go and find this person. We also learn that Hans Gruber is really just a criminal. He is in the building to steal $640 million worth of a kind of investment called a bond. These bond certificates or pieces of paper are inside the building in something called a safe. A safe, S-A-F-E, is a strong, secure box or room where you keep valuable things, things that you don't want someone to steal. Most banks, for example, have a safe where you can perhaps put valuable objects that you own into a little box, what we call a safe deposit box. Well, this isn't a bank. This is a business that has a safe inside of the building. The owner of this building is a man by the name of Joe Takaji. Gruber wants Takaji to give him the, what we would call, combination or numbers that would let him go into the safe. Of course, so Gruber can steal everything inside. Takaji refuses, and so Gruber kills Takaji. The building, by the way, is called the Takaji Building. Meanwhile, while this is going on, the men that Gruber sent to find John McClane are searching every floor, every level, in order to find them. McClane, however, is waiting for them. He knows that they are going to come looking for him, 
and so he kills these men, or at least most of them. So what does Gruber do? He sends even more men to look for our hero, John McClane. McClane is eventually able to contact the police by using one of the radios that he gets from one of the men he has killed. He talks to a police officer by the name of Sergeant Al Powell. Powell arrives and looks at the building from the outside, and it seems that there is nothing wrong. So he's about to leave when McLean, realizing he has to do something else to get the police's attention, throws the body of one of the men he has killed onto Powell's police car. Well, of course, immediately, Powell understands that something serious is happening, and he calls for more support more police officers. The movie continues, and Gruber and his men continue to try to find McLean and try to steal the money and objects that are inside of the safe. Will they be successful? Will they kill John McLean? Or will they be killed? Well, I'm not going to tell you the ending of the movie, but my guess is many of you have seen it. If you haven't, it's an exciting movie to watch, and you should try to find it somewhere, I think. I think you'll enjoy it. Now, John McClane, I mentioned earlier, was played by a famous actor, Bruce Willis. And the bad guy, Hans Gruber, is played by another famous actor. Not a German, but a Brit, someone from Great Britain an actor by the name of Alan Rickman, who was also in the Harry Potter movies. There's a famous and funny part of the movie where Gruber asks McLean who he is, and McLean refuses to give his name or tell him why he is in the building. So Gruber calls McLean Mr. Cowboy. A cowboy, C-O-W-B-O-Y, is a man who rides horses. Cowboys featured famously in many movies during the 20th century in what are called westerns, movies about the western part of the United States during the 19th century. In these westerns, cowboys are always tough. Cowboys are always or typically the heroes. One of the things that cowboys would say in these movies is an expression that just means I'm excited or let's go. The expression was yippee-ki-yay. Well, because Hans Gruber calls McLean cowboy, McLean, during one important scene or part of the movie, says to Gruber, yippee-ki-yay, and then calls Gruber a very vulgar name. The name has the word mother in it, as well as another word that begins with F that I won't repeat here on the podcast, but if you know something about English, you probably have heard what we call the F word. He uses this word, obviously, in an insulting way when he talks to Gruber. A lot of people wonder what yippee ki means. It's just an expression 
that doesn't have any meaning, at least in English, other than to say that you are excited or to say, let's go. No one uses it anymore in daily conversational English unless they're making a joke related to the Die Hard movie. It's only an expression you would hear in an old Western movie. Die Hard was immediately popular, not only in the United States, but all around the world. In fact, it was so popular, they made a couple more Die Hard movies. Die Hard 2 was released in 1990. Die Hard with a Vengeance was released in 1995. In 2005, Live Free or Die Hard was released in 2013. There was a good day to die hard. And there is apparently one more movie, not yet released at the time I am recording this episode in the summer of 2015, called Die Hardest. Even though the other movies have not been as popular as the original, people still love and know this character, John McClane, played by the actor Bruce Willis. From movies, we turn to poetry. The poet Emma Lazarus was born in New York in July of 1849. She was a Sephardic Jew. Sephardic, S-E-P-H-A-R-D-I-C, means that she was descended from the Jewish people who lived in Spain and Portugal in the late 16th century. When I say she was descended from, I mean she was a relative of. Her family many, many years ago, centuries ago, was from this particular group. She was raised in New York, and she had the opportunity when she was there during this time in the middle of the 19th century to study different languages and the literature of different languages. As a result, she grew up a very well-educated woman. This was somewhat unusual for women during this period of history. Lazarus began writing early in her life and published her first book in 1867 when she was only 18 years old. The book was called Poems and Translations and was very well received by newspapers and others who were educated. To be well received means it got a positive response from people, from those who read it. In fact, the famous American author, Ralph Waldo Emerson, liked Lazarus's poems and writing so much that he began telling other people about her work. As a way of thanking Emerson for his support, Lazarus dedicated her next book, Admetus and Other Poems, published in 1871, to Ralph Waldo Emerson. When I say she dedicated the book to him, I mean that she said that this particular book was done in his honor. You can dedicate your book to 
a certain important person in your life or to someone you think had an influence on you or was perhaps someone who had an influence on the topic you are writing about. When I published my first book, I dedicated it to my parents. That's a common dedication for books. Sometimes even movies and TV shows, when you watch them at the end, will show a person to whom that movie or show was dedicated. Over the next 10 years, Lazarus published three more books and had many of her poems published in magazines. Beginning in 1881, Emma Lazarus started to focus on the difficulties, the problems of the Jewish people in Europe and in the United States. At this time, during the late 19th century, many Jews were immigrating to the United States from Eastern Europe and Russia because of the persecution they experienced there. Persecution comes from the verb to persecute, P-E-R-S-E-C-U-T-E. To persecute someone means to treat someone very badly because of perhaps his or her race or political beliefs or religion. Unfortunately, some of the Jewish people who escaped persecution from Eastern Europe and Russia came to the United States and were not made to feel very welcome here either. Lazarus decided to write more about the persecution of Jews in Eastern Europe to try to make Americans understand the difficult situation these new immigrants had faced, had lived through. She also began working with Jewish immigrants arriving to the United States to try to help them adjust to build new lives here. Lazarus was proud to be an American, so it is no surprise that when a group of people asked her to help raise money, to help get more money to build what we would call the base for the Statue of Liberty, she agreed. The Statue of Liberty, you may know, was a gift from the people of France to the United States. It is the famous structure in New York City with Lady Liberty holding up a torch, a lamp. In order to put the Statue of Liberty up in New York... They needed something to put it on. The base, B-A-S-E, is what the statue rests on. It's the thing you put the statue on. They needed a base, and in order to build the base, they needed money. France had paid for the building of the statue, but the people of New York had to build the base upon which to put it. Lazarus decided to write a poem to make some money to help pay for this base, and the poem was called The New Colossus. A colossus, C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S, is a statue of a person that is much larger than a real person. People liked Lazarus's poem so much that they decided to put it on the base of the Statue of Liberty after Lazarus died. 
The poem that Lazarus wrote is still one of the most famous poems known to at least some Americans. School children often learn the poem, or at least they used to. The poem contains the famous lines, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. The poem is about welcoming people who have been persecuted in their home countries into the United States. The first line of the poem is, Give me your tired, your poor. That's easy enough to understand. The second line is a little more difficult. It says, Your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. To huddle, H-U-D-D-L-E, means to stand very close together, stand close to other people. A mass, M-A-S-S, is a large group of something. In this case, a large group of people. Now, why would people huddle next to each other? Why would they stand close to each other? Well, perhaps because they're scared, or maybe they're just cold. New York gets awfully cold in the wintertime. However, I think it's the first meaning there, that people perhaps are being persecuted and they're scared, and so they huddle together for safety. These masses huddling together were, according to Lazarus, yearning to breathe free. To yearn, Y-E-A-R-N, means to desire something strongly, to really want something. These people want to breathe free. They want to be free. The final line of this section of the poem says, The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. The word wretched, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D, means very unhappy or very unlucky. Refuse, R-E-F-U-S-E, basically means trash, something that you throw away. So the wretched refuse would be, I guess, the people from other countries who are unlucky and whose countries no longer want them or no longer seem to want them. The word teeming, T-E-E-M-I-N-G, is not a common word in English. It means to be full of something. A shore, S-H-O-R-E, is a piece of land next to the sea, next to a lake or another large body or area of water. So we have the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. You can imagine these people who are huddled next to each other in a large group standing on the shore of another country wanting to go to a different country. Sadly, a situation that we continue to see even in the 21st century. You can see how Lazarus, in writing these words, was in part expressing her thoughts, her opinions about welcoming the persecuted Jews from Europe who were then arriving to the United States. Because of what the Statue of Liberty represents to people coming to this country, the words of the poem are also very appropriate or suitable 
for other groups as well, and certainly appropriate for being placed on the base of the Statue of Liberty. Lazarus actually spent a couple of years in the 1880s traveling through Europe and learning more of the history of the Jews there. By the time she returned to New York, she was very sick, and she died in 1887. Emma Lazarus continues to be a well-known poet because of this poem, The New Colossus. In many ways, that is perhaps the best way to remember her as someone who cared deeply about the United States, who was proud to be an American, and who wanted to welcome those who were persecuted in other countries to this country. Now let's answer a few of your questions. Our first question comes from Iris, I-R-I-S, in China. The question has to do with three expressions or terms, in front of, ahead of, and before. All three of these have a similar meaning. Let's start with in front, F-R-O-N-T, of something. To be in front of means to be in a position just ahead of something else. So if I am standing in a line in a queue waiting for service at the bank, I have someone in front of me and I have someone behind me. The person in front of me will get service right before I get service. Ahead of A-H-E-A-D-O-F, means the same as in front of and can usually be used in the same situations where you would use in front of. It can be used to describe someone's physical position. However, it can also be used to mean the same thing as the third term in this question, before. Ahead of can mean prior in time or before something happens. So you can talk about someone finishing his test ahead of the other students. He wasn't physically in front of the other students, but he finished his test before, in terms of time, the other students. The word before can actually mean either something related to time or to physical location, although usually we use it to mean something related to time. Before, when used to talk about in front of in location, often appears with the verb to stand. In somewhat more formal English, you can say, I stand before you. It's a somewhat poetic way of saying I'm standing in front of you, although the more normal meaning is I am here talking to you. For example, if you were in a courtroom before a judge. You were standing before the judge. I stand before you saying that I am innocent. It's a little more formal or perhaps a little bit more poetic way of expressing that idea. Our next question comes from Amaurus, A-M-A-U-R-S, in Cuba. Amaurus wants to know 
the meanings of three different phrases or expressions, as if, as though, and as for. The truth is we could spend an hour talking about these three expressions, but let me just give you the brief definitions and uses of each. As if means as would be the situation if, or as would be the case if. For example, my brother acted as if he were innocent. He isn't actually innocent, but he's pretending to be innocent. The use of the expression as if asks you to imagine a hypothetical situation, something that isn't true, or at least isn't true right now. As though, T-H-O-U-G-H, means the same as as if. In most situations, you can use as though and as if interchangeably, one for the other. You might have noticed in my example for as if that I use the past tense, and not even a form of the past tense that you might associate with the example, which was with a third-person singular pronoun. The use of as if and as though is one of the few cases where something called the subjunctive mood is used in English and changes the form of the verb. However, in recent years, the use of the subjunctive in this case in English has become less and less popular. Nowadays, you will hear people say and write things such as as if he was innocent instead of as if he were innocent. You will also hear the present tense used with as if and as though. He acts as if he owns this room instead of he acts as if he owned this room. As for has a completely different meaning than as if and as though. As for, F-O-R, simply means concerning or with regard to. It's a little more formal than saying regarding or concerning. For example, as for Sally, she decided to leave her job last year. As for there means in talking about or referring to Sally. You're telling the listener the topic of what your sentence is about. We probably would use this expression as for when we are talking about a number of different people or a number of different groups, and you want to make sure that the person listening to you understands the person to whom you are referring or about whom you are speaking. You can even use it for yourself. You could say, as for me, I don't want to go to the movie. You might say that if just previously you had been talking about other people wanting to go to a movie or your friends wanting to go to a movie. You're trying to say, well, in my case, as for me, I don't want to go to the movie. Notice that because for is a preposition that the pronoun that comes after it is the object pronoun, me. You don't say as for I, you say as for me. 
you don't say as for he, you say as for him. It's the object of the preposition. Finally, Emil, I-M-I-L, in Colombia, wants to know the meaning of the expression to take stock. To take stock, S-T-O-C-K, means usually to think about a situation or an event carefully so that you can make a decision about what to do, to examine your own life or a certain situation in your life in order to make a decision or to form an opinion about something. Another meaning of to take stock is to make a list or to check a list of things that you own, especially if you have a store that sells things. If you have a store that sells shoes, every so often you would want to take stock of the shoes in your store. You'd want to go through and count the shoes to make sure that they're all there or that perhaps someone hasn't stolen some of them. But in normal conversation, we use this expression to take stock of something in a more general way, meaning to think about something carefully or examine something carefully. I need to take stock of my life. I need to figure out why I'm here on this earth and what I'm supposed to be doing. If you can answer that question, you can email me. My email address is eslpod at eslpod.com. Oh, if you have other questions about English, you can email me also. From Los Angeles, California, I'm Jeff McQuillan. Thank you for listening. Come back and listen to us again right here on The English Cafe. ESL Podcast English Cafe was written and produced by Dr. Jeff McQuillan and Dr. Lucy Say. This podcast is copyright 2015 by the Center for Educational Development.